Section 26 of A Popular History of France, Volume 4. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Cathy Barrett. A Popular History of France from the Earliest Times, Volume 4, by François Guizot. Translated by Robert Black. Chapter 30. Francis I and the Reformation, Part 6. After having wandered for some time longer in Switzerland, Germany, and Italy, Calvin, in 1536, arrived at Geneva. It was at this time a small independent republic which had bravely emancipated itself from the domination of the Dukes of Savoy, and in which the Reformation had acquired strength, but it had not yet got rid of that lawless and precarious condition which is the first phase presented by revolutionary innovations after victory neither the political nor the religious community at geneva had yet received any organization which could be called regular or regarded as definitive the two communities had not yet understood and regulated their reciprocal positions and the terms on which they were to live together all was ferment and haze in this little nascent state as regarded the mental as well as the actual condition when calvin arrived there his name was already almost famous there he had given proofs of devotion to the cause of the reformation his book on the institution de la religion chrétienne had just appeared a great instinct for organization was strikingly evinced in it at the same time that the dedication to francis i testified to a serious regard for the principle of authority and for its rights as well as the part it ought to perform in human communities calvin had many friends in switzerland and they urged him to settle at once at geneva and to labor at establishing there christian order in the reformed church simultaneously with its independence and its religious liberties in its relations with the civil estate at first calvin hesitated and resisted he was one of those who take strict account beforehand of the difficulties to be encountered and the trials to be undergone in any enterprise for the success of which they are most desirous, and who inwardly shudder at the prospect of such a burden. But the Christian's duty, the reformer's zeal, the lively apprehension of the perils which were being incurred by the cause of the Reformation, and the nobly ambitious hope of delivering it, these sentiments united prevailed over the first misgivings of that great and mighty soul, and Calvin devoted himself in Geneva to a work which from 1536 to 1564, in a course of violent struggles and painful vicissitudes, was to absorb and rapidly consume his whole life. From that time forth a principle, we should rather say a passion, held sway in Calvin's heart, and was his guiding star in the permanent organization of the church which he founded, as well as in his personal conduct during his life. That principle is the profound distinction between the religious and the civil community distinction we say and by no means separation calvin on the contrary desired alliance between the two communities and the two powers but each to be independent in its own domain combining their action showing mutual respect and lending mutual support to this alliance he looked for the reformation and the moral discipline of the members of the church placed under the authority of its own special religious officers and upheld by the indirect influence of the civil power in this principle and this fundamental labor of Calvin's there were two new and bold reforms attempted in the very heart of the great reformation in Europe, and over and above the work of its first promoters. Henry the Eighth, on removing the Church of England from the domination of the papacy, had proclaimed himself its head, and the Church of England had accepted this royal supremacy. Zwingle, when he provoked in German Switzerland the rupture with the Church of Rome, had approved of the arrangement that the sovereign authority in matters of religion should pass into the hands of the civil powers. 
Luther himself, at the same time that he reserved to the new German church a certain measure of spontaneity and liberty, had placed it under the protection and preponderance of laic sovereigns. In this great question as to the relations between church and state, Calvin desired and did more than his predecessors. Even before he played any considerable part in the European Reformation, as soon as he heard of Henry VIII's religious supremacy in England, he had strongly declared against such a regimen. With an equitable spirit rare in his day, and in spite of his contest with the Church of Rome, he was struck with the strength and dignity conferred upon that church by having an existence distinct from the civil community, and by the independence of its head when he himself became a great reformer he did not wish the reformed church to lose this grand characteristic whilst proclaiming it evangelical he demanded for it in matters of faith and discipline the independence and special authority which had been possessed by the primitive church and in spite of the resistance often shown to him by the civil magistrates in spite of the concessions he was sometimes obliged to make to them he firmly maintained this principle and he secured to the reformed church of geneva in purely religious questions and affairs the right of self-government according to the faith and the law as they stand written in the holy books he at the same time put in force in this church a second principle of no less importance in the course of ages and by a series of successive modifications some natural and others factitious and illegitimate the christian church had become so to speak cut in two into the ecclesiastical community and the religious community the clergy and the worshippers in the catholic church the power was entirely in the hands of the clergy the ecclesiastical body completely governed the religious body and whilst the latter was advancing more and more in laic ideas and sentiments the former remained even more and more distinct and sovereign the german and english reformations had already modified this state of things and given to the lay community a certain portion of influence in religious questions and affairs calvin provided for the matter in a still more direct and effectual fashion not only as regarded affairs in general but even the choice of pastors he gave admission to laymen in larger number too than that of the ecclesiastics into the consistories and synods the governing authorities in the reformed church he thus did away with the separation between the clergy and the worshippers he called upon them to deliberate and act together and to secure to the religious community in its entirety their share of authority in the affairs and fortunes of the church thus began at geneva under the inspiration and through the influence of calvin that ecclesiastical organization which developing completing and modifying itself according to the requirements of places and times became under the name of presbyterian regimen the regimen of the reformed churches in france french switzerland holland scotland and amongst a considerable portion of the protestant population in england and in the united states of america a regimen evangelical in origin and character republican in some of its maxims and institutions but no stranger to the principle of authority one which admitted of discipline and was calculated for duration and which has kept for three centuries amongst the most civilized people a large measure of christian faith ecclesiastical order and civil liberty it was a french refugee who instituted in a foreign city this regimen and left it as a legacy to the french reformation and to the numerous christian communities who were eager to adopt it it is on this ground that calvin takes a place in the history of france and has a fair right to be counted amongst the eminent men who have carried to a distance the influence the language and the fame of the country in the bosom of which it was not permitted them to live and labor 
in fifteen forty seven when the death of francis i was at hand that ecclesiastical organization of protestantism which calvin had instituted at geneva was not even begun in france the french protestants were as yet but isolated and scattered individuals without any bond of generally accepted and practised faith or discipline and without any eminent and recognised heads the reformation pursued its course but a reformed church did not exist and this confused mass of reformers and reformed had to face an old a powerful and a strongly constituted church which looked upon the innovators as rebels over whom it had every right as much as against them it had every arm in each of the two camps prevailed errors of enormous magnitude and fruitful of fatal consequences catholics and protestants both believed themselves to be in exclusive possession of the truth of all religious truth and to have the right of imposing it by force upon their adversaries the moment they had the power both were strangers to any respect for human conscience human thought and human liberty those who had clamoured for this on their own account when they were weak had no regard for it in respect of others when they felt themselves to be strong on the side of the protestants the ferment was at full heat but as yet vague and unsettled on the part of the catholics the persecution was unscrupulous and unlimited such was the position and such the state of feeling in which francis i at his death on the thirty first of march fifteen forty seven left the two parties that had already been at grips during his reign he had not succeeded either in reconciling them or in securing the triumph of that which had his favour and the defeat of that which he would have liked to vanquish that was in nearly all that he undertook his fate he lacked the spirit of sequence and steady persistence and his merits as well as his defects almost equally urged him on to rashly attempt that which he only incompletely executed he was neither prudent nor persevering and he may be almost said to have laid himself out to please everybody rather than to succeed in one and the same great purpose a short time before his death a venetian ambassador who had resided a long while at his court marino cavalli drew up and forwarded to the senate of venice a portrait of him so observantly sketched and so full of truth that it must be placed here side by side with the more exacting and more severe judgment already pronounced here touching this brilliant but by no means far-sighted or effective king Quote, the king is now fifty years of age his aspect is in every respect kingly insomuch that without ever having seen his face or his portrait any one on merely looking at him would say at once that is the king all his movements are so noble and majestic that no prince could equal them his constitution is robust in spite of the excessive fatigue he has constantly undergone and still undergoes in so many expeditions and travels he eats and drinks a great deal sleeps still better and what is more dreams of nothing but leading a jolly life he is rather fond of being an exquisite in his dress which is slashed and laced and rich with jewellery and precious stones even his doublets are daintily worked and of golden tissue his shirt is very fine and it shows through an opening in the doublet according to the fashion of france this delicate and dainty way of living contributes to his health in proportion as the king bears bodily fatigue well and endures it without bending beneath the burden in the same proportion do mental cares weigh heavily upon him and he shifts them almost entirely on to the cardinal de tournon and to admiral annebault he takes no resolve he makes no reply without having had their advice and if ever which is very rare an answer happens to be given or a concession made without having received the approval of these two advisers he revokes it or modifies it but in what concerns the great affairs of state 
peace or war his majesty docile as he is in everything else will have the rest obedient to his wishes in that case there is nobody at court whatever authority he may possess who dare gainsay his majesty this prince has a very sound judgment and a great deal of information there is no sort of thing or study or art about which he cannot converse very much to the point it is true that when people see how in spite of his knowledge and his fine talk all his warlike enterprises have turned out ill they say that all his wisdom lies on his lips and not in his mind but i think that the calamities of this king come from lack of men capable of properly carrying out his designs as for him he will never have anything to do with the execution or even with the superintendence of it in any way it seems to him quite enough to know his own part which is to command and to supply plans accordingly that which might be wished for in him is a little more care and patience not by any means more experience and knowledge his majesty readily pardons offences and he becomes heartily reconciled with those whom he has offended it is said that at the close of his reign francis i in spite of all the resources of his mind and all his easy-going qualities was much depressed and that he died in sadness and disquietude as to the future one may be inclined to think that in his egotism he was more sad on his own account than disquieted on that of his successors and of france however that may be he was assuredly far from foreseeing the terrible civil war which began after him and the crimes as well as disasters which it caused none of his more intimate circle was any longer in a position to excite his solicitude his mother louise of savoy had died sixteen years before him september twenty second fifteen thirty one his most able and most wicked adviser chancellor duprat twelve years july twenty nine fifteen thirty five his sister marguerite survived him two years she died december twenty first fifteen forty nine quote, disgusted with everything say the historians and quote, weary of life end quote. said she herself quote, no father now have i no mother sister or brother on god alone i now rely who ruleth over earth and sky o world i say good-bye to you to relatives and friendly ties to honours and to wealth adieu i hold them all for enemies and yet marguerite was loath to leave life she had always been troubled at the idea of death when she was spoken to about eternal life she would shake her head sometimes saying quote, all that is true but we remain a mighty long while dead underground before arriving there when she was told that her end was near she quote, considered that a very bitter word end quote saying that, quote, she was not so old, but that she might still live some years, end quote. She had been the most generous, the most affectionate, and the most lovable person in a family and a court which were both corrupt, and of which she only too often acquiesced in the weaknesses and even vices, though she always fought against their injustice and their cruelty. She had the honor of being the grandmother of Henry the Fourth. End of section 26